This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, today we've got a fantastic episode. If you are somebody that loves real estate, if you are somebody that loves investing in real estate, you're going to have a lot to take away from this episode. We've got Raul Jaime, VP Investment Management at Quadreal. That's right. Raul was gracious enough to come down to the studio, talk about Quadreal's... Well, we got to back up because we... We've, uh, you know, I'd call Raul a friend. Would you? Would he call you a friend? That's, 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 the, that's, the key. that's, that's, we both went to the University of Calgary at the same time. Didn't know each other then. Doesn't make you friends. <laughs> we, I've skied with him. Right. He never sat beside me on the chairlift. Again, not friends. <laughs> this this uh, sounds like there's been a bunch of coincidences we, we, in your life. We both ended up at the same, and you were there too in Pemberton. We spent Pemberton. a night. Spent a, a night in Pemberton that was a lot of fun. And now he's on the show. Yes. He is the VP of Investment Management at Quadreal. And man, what an insightful guy. So glad to have uh, Raul on the show. I got to say, I had a lot of good conversations our night in Pemberton right. at a uh, friend of the show, Sam Atkins' place right. with Raul. But man, did he, I, he went to the next level on this, in this I know. conversation. I feel like this was one that blew my hair back a bit. It did. It did. Yeah. And the greatest part about this conversation is Quadreal, you know, they're based out of Vancouver, but they right. they focus on global cities. So the way that they approach investing, you know, it speaks to how we think about real estate in Vancouver in a way that, you know, some people uh, who we talk about investing on the show, it doesn't, you know, talking about cash flow and all the rest. Raul is, is grounded in in Vancouver with that larger perspective that Quadreal has. So it's it's great conversation. So there there were some tips in this program today that I think are some of the most forthright and just frank kind of like, this is what you should buy. Right. Right. <laughs> type tips. Yeah. Right? I love his advice. I think it's super I've I've shared it with a few people now and I did actually an you, Instagram post. I was gonna post. say you shared it on Instagram. I did an Instagram post, uh, tons of positive feedback, tons of people that basically say I've I've shared this advice or I've, I've shared this, these thoughts about the market and investing similar to Raul. And, uh, yeah, anyways, it's fantastic. Tons of takeaways, tons of takeaways today. He's uh, also a pretty good snowboarder, not friends again. <laughs> uh, without further ado, Matt, maybe we should cut to our conversation with Raul. I he's the VP of investment management. That's right. At Quadril. This is a great one. Enjoy. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, 
over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one-beds to three-beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Okay, so we're here with Raul Jaime. He's the Vice President Investment Management at Quad Real Residential Properties. How you doing, Raul? Pretty good. Good morning. Nice to see you guys. Yeah, yeah. good. Uh, thanks for coming in and taking the time, Raul. Maybe for, for our listeners, can you start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? Okay. So every time I get asked that question, I have to say that I have probably the most unorthodox uh, real estate career. I never really set out to... Uh, to be in real estate, my academic background, it wasn't going that way to start, but uh, somehow I ended up getting into real estate like many other people. So the backstory here is, and I don't know, we got to dig deep, but we we met through a mutual friend. Yeah. We both were at the University of Calgary in 1997. Yeah. You from Mexico, me from Winnipeg. Yeah. Uh, we didn't meet each other in the den on a Thursday night, <laughs> but we probably bumped shoulders at some point. What did you study at, at UFC? My undergrad is uh, political science. Oh, it's even interest, more interesting. And you were actually the quarterback of the, the Dinos. Is that right? I wasn't the quarterback. I was a quarterback for the Dinos. Yes, I always had to make that distinction. <laughs> and uh, so, but wait a second. Did, does that mean you saw you saw some playing time, or were you always uh, a, a very little of uh, playing time? Yes. Now, okay. like when I tried out for the Dinos, I was nineteen. Our starting quarterback, Daryl Leeson, was twenty-seven. So there was a bit of a gap on uh, experience and strength there. <laughs> so, so, so think think about it about how how you played left wing. Uh, but you weren't the left wing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I rode the bench a lot. I uh, did uh, send the signals in for the play. That was my participation in every game. Okay, so yeah. you had to know all the plays. Yeah, and- we had hand signals for the game, for the plays. So the coach would tell me the play. I had this little cheat sheet in my wrist uh, with a number. And then the code for the number was sent in with signs. So you're you're at uh you, you're taking PolySci, and now you're VP of Investment Management at Quadreal. Correct. How do you, how do you get into real estate? Okay, that's a big story. So, you know, as you said, I grew up in Mexico. Uh, came here to university. Didn't really have a plan to be honest. I uh, got into PolySci because I at the time I thought I liked that sort of thing. I then went on to Spain to do more schooling. I do have a, a master's in international business. And when I went back to Mexico, I really thought, oh, the, the jobs are just going to rain on me. You know, uh, this, this kid has two foreign university degrees and um, there's going to be a lineup of people trying to hire me, which was not the case. So the town where I was living, I was living in Proviarda during a time when all you had to do was start digging a hole and put some 
chairs in front of it with a for sale sign and people would buy real estate. Uh, this was 2006, seven. So I, I literally got into real estate because a family, like my mom was in real estate. I started kind of helping her out and uh, that's all she wrote. I started doing that full time eventually. And so how did you get back to Canada then? So you were, you, you got into real estate in Mexico. Yeah. And then how, walk us through uh, putting a couple of chairs out in front of a hole in the ground to, uh, to Quadrille. Yeah. So I also did have a, a daytime job. I actually worked at the Canadian consulate in Proviarda. And a friend of mine who lived in Calgary, but he's a lawyer from Mexico, was working at the Mexican consulate in Calgary. And both him and myself been working at the consulate, a lot of people would come in, a lot of Canadians would come in asking questions about buying property in Mexico. Like, hey, I saw a condo. I would be interested in buying it. I would like some advice from the consulate. And obviously consulates don't, don't do that, right? Like we don't give advice or consulates are managed not to give people advice on making investments or buying property. But my friend Carlos and I realized a lot of deals are not going through because the hesitation that buyers have from going through the process of buying property in a foreign land. So we had this idea of opening a consultancy where we would help people close on, on their properties, explain to them all the process of setting up a bank trust, etc. So that was our business, basically. And uh, we opened an office in Calgary, and that's how I moved back to, to Calgary. Wow. So you were, selling, you were selling real estate in Mexico or advising on real estate in Mexico from an office in Calgary. Yes. Yeah. So if you remember, we, we opened the business in 2008. Okay. So the timing was a little <laughs> off, unfortunately. <laughs> but there really was a huge boom for a while, mostly driven by Americans with, uh, you know, home equity lines of credit. But a lot of Canadians were also buying, and a lot of Canadians continue to buy property in Mexico. It's, it's, it's much cheaper to retire there. And uh, the standard of living you can have there is, is quite... Uh, more comfortable than, than than what you can get here on uh, retirement income. Uh, so yes, we had an office in Calgary. Our whole idea, and we noticed that people, you know, they go to Mexico on a vacation. Maybe they spend their call it a month, and they go tour properties. But then they go back to Edmonton or Lethbridge or whatever they're from, and now they're trying to proceed with a transaction from a, a far distance. Sometimes there's language barriers. There's definitely uh, a barrier in, in terms of the legalities and, and the process itself of, of acquiring the property there. And a lot of people just hesitated too much and, and backed out of operations. So we thought that having a physical presence in Calgary, or at least in Canada, people would come to our office and know, okay, these guys are here. We, we, we charge a fee to help them with the process. We're, we're not part of the sale. And uh, we carry them through to completion. Hmm. But the timing, so the financial crisis hits, mm -hmm. presumably the market dries up at least for, for a short time. Did you, did you ride, ride it out or? Yeah, or was I mean, that we, we did okay uh, for the first while. Then what happened was, you've heard similar stories in Canada, but condo development developers rely on pre-sales to finance you know, part, part of the construction at least. Sure. So. When the pre-sales dried up in Mexico, a lot of developers actually were very, very delayed in delivering the product. So some of the clients that we had that were going through the process of acquiring a property in Mexico, eventually 
they actually came back to us asking, hey, you know, this condo is three years late, four years late. I want my money back. So my partner, Carlos, was a, a lawyer. He was doing the litigation. Right? So, so our business turned from helping uh, people acquire. It turned a little bit more into helping people get out of, <laughs> get out of the real estate. <laughs> yeah. So, and then, and yes, we, we were hit pretty hard by the uh, financial crisis. So maybe fast forwarding a little bit here, Raul, you're now at Quadrille in Vancouver. I know that you worked at a not-for-profit yeah. before Quadrille. How do you move from Calgary and Mexican real estate to Vancouver and global real estate? Right. Yeah. I mean, when I moved to, to Vancouver and I moved to Vancouver basically after my, my business in Calgary was struggling and real estate has been you know, my background, my professional background. So when I first moved here, I actually worked for Patterson Outdoor. So, you know, the billboards, all those billboards have a lease uh, with the property owner. So whether they're on top of a building or on a piece of land or in a parking lot, Patterson Outdoor pays a lease to the landowner. Uh, and that was my job as, uh, you know, negotiating all those leases. So real estate, I went to BC Housing, went to non-for-profit, now I'm at Quadrial. Like we were saying before that we hit the record button, most developers today must understand affordable housing, right? If, if they don't, it's coming their way very quickly. Most municipalities now have requirements that projects have either purpose-built rental uh, units that have either fixed rents or whatever program the municipality comes up on that day. But most new projects are going to have to deal with it one way or the other. So not that, you know, that's my day-to-day at Quadrial, but it definitely comes in handy having that background of how non-for-profits operate because it's coming up now, right? Our projects, a lot of them have affordable housing components. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One last question, then we'll get to, yeah, no get to the market here. Transitioning from a not-for-profit in the real estate space to Quadrille. Cultural difference, more overlap than you'd think, totally different environments? No, it, it, it's night and day. I mean, it, it, it is a complete difference, right? Like the, the well, first of all, the, the mandate is different, right? Uh, a non-for-profit, as the name says, they, they, they can't run a surplus, right? right. So they, their operating budgets have to be pretty tight. Quadrille is it's a for-profit company. We, we are investors in, of, of real estate and we want to see a return. So it's definitely a, a cultural shift. However, you know, I don't know if you've had a chance to look through Quadrille's values, but we, we are a responsible company. Like responsibility is one of our values and contributing to the communities where we invest is important to us. So the background that I have from, from non-for-profits has allowed me to, even at meetings with other non-for-profits that are, we're now trying to partner with or with municipalities or with BC Housing, I come in with that you know, I, I've been in the trenches, kind of street cred, if you want. Um, and, I, and I do have the experience that, that's needed to, to have those conversations when, when you have to have them. Right. Maybe shifting gears a little bit, Raul. Um, so in terms of uh, your role at Quadrille, how, how closely are you following the market and, and what's your take on the current market? I follow it very closely. We obviously have condo developments going on. You might have heard of Oak Ridge. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> and also, you know, as you guys know, a good percentage and, and the exact number is hard to know, but 50, 60, 40 percent of condo sales, of new condo sales are to investors, to investors that are going to rent out the properties. And 
Quadrial, particularly my, my group, uh, Residential Properties, we operate apartment buildings. And our main competition is other apartment buildings. But our secondary competition is condominiums owned by an individual landowner that are rented out. That's the, the secondary market that we compete against. So, yes, I, I look at the market very closely to see what are people buying condos for? Because that factors into, okay, if this person paid a million dollars for a one bedroom or two bedroom, how much do they have to rent it for in order to clear a mortgage or, or you know, at least break even under cash flows? So those factors do come in when we're thinking about uh, new investments, when we're thinking about the rents that we charge for our apartments. But yes, uh, close, paying close sense to the market. What do I think of the market? So it's hard to buy right now. Interest rates are higher, right? A lot less transactions are happening. In the world that we play um, day in, day out, which is single title, uh, purpose-built rental buildings, transactions are, are down. We've seen less transactions. There's been a lot of talk about cap rate expansion. January of last year, start of the year, the highest cap rate was probably 3.5, 3.75 in some suburban markets. With interest rates the way they are today, there's a lot more pressure on, well, have those cap rates gone above four? However, when you, when you still look at transactions, you're like, well, there's still plenty of transactions, you know, in the low threes, mid threes. So we've seen some erosion of value in, um, in the residential sector, but it hasn't been as dramatic as I think a lot of people thought would be. Which kind of mirrors the, the, the residential market in, in a lot of ways too, right? There's been some declines in pricing uh, and actually increase in rents. So cap rates going up, but not the declines at least have not been as dramatic as a lot of people expected. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, the fundamental driver of the Vancouver market is the fact that more people are moving here than there are houses for them to live in. That's a fact. We don't build enough of all kinds of housing, whether it's affordable housing, middle of the market, luxury, just the numbers of people moving here far exceeds the number of housing units that get delivered. And that's going to continue to drive prices up until municipalities and provincial government and the federal government realize that the affordability issues that you, can, you, you hear about on a daily basis are a supply uh, issue. It's not, you know, additional taxes. There's plenty of taxes already attached to real estate. It's not on the demand side. This supply issue. Mm. I just want to go back and, and double click on the uh, the interplay between you and your competition. So thinking about the individual kind of mom and pop investor and how much they're going to try and charge for rent to cover the property or or maybe even cash flow in some in some cases. So how does that inform your analysis? Can we talk a little bit about that? Like, so is there? I'm I'm assuming that Quadreal is acquiring these properties at a, a lower price per door than what the general public is paying at a pre-sale in a similar location. It, and so you probably have a bit of a buffer there in terms of what you can charge rent. Is there, are you trying to undercut rent? Are you trying to max rent? Or what, what, how does that play out in your mind? Yeah, I mean, again, Quadrial, who have a mandate to invest prudently and you know, produce a return for BCI. Performance is, is one of our values. And we have to acquire real estate that's going to allow us with our operating platform to, you know, bring a acceptable return um, 
to, to our investors. Economics of an individual buyer buying a condo are different than ours, of course. Like we, when we buy a building, uh, you know, we did a couple of purchases in North Vancouver a couple of years ago. We paid about $550,000 per door and we bought almost 200 units, right? You, you can't buy a one-bedroom apartment right now for $550,000. We bought almost 200 of them at about that price. So we get a bit of a bulk discount. And there's still, even today, you know, a couple of years later, uh, the deals that I see in the market, you can still pick up an apartment building and pay no more than $650,000 per door, which is not the same you can save for. And this is, I'm talking newer product, right? Like I'm not talking, you know, a very old walk-up wood frame built in the 60s in sure. Kitsilano. We're talking newer product, sometimes even concrete. When you buy the whole building, it's, uh, it's much more economical than buying individual units. But since there's enough buyers out there that do buy a condo to rent it out for that specific purpose, and like you said, a lot of people are willing to purchase an investment property and be cash flow neutral. You know, as long as it covers their mortgage, property taxes, and condo fees, they are betting on the appreciation of the asset, right? So that's our analysis is what are the what's the universe of one bedrooms and two bedrooms going for in the market, and reverse engineer. I mean, and we we also go on Craigslist and all the other sources of sure. rental information when we click around. And a lot of the times you can find, you know, a listing for a condo in Yelltown and a listing for sale and, and a listing on Craigslist for a rental in the same building, right? So you can say, oh, well, this person's renting it for X amount. This is how, what, what they're going for on the market. So we started to do an analysis of, okay, how is our competition secondary market going to be pricing their units? and Therefore, in our underwriting, we can't say, well, we're going to get 2500 bucks for a one-bedroom when there's a universe of one-bedrooms going for 2000 right? Sure. So we have our ear to the ground constantly um, reviewing what, uh, what the market is absorbing. Obviously, we have the data from our own properties that, uh, that we look at super closely as well. So that, yeah, a combination of those things is what helps us make decisions. Is Quadreal doing uh, furnished rentals as well, or is it more long-term vacant uh, rentals? Yeah, currently we only do long-term rentals unfurnished. Definitely we are exploring the possibility of doing uh, rented, uh, sorry, uh, furnished apartments for shorter-term stays. It's tricky. Different municipalities have different rules on you know, length of stay. The RTA uh, also also comes in, the Residence Act. But right now, all we have is uh, long-term rentals unfurnished, but we're definitely exploring alternatives. We, we do have some partnerships with shorter-term stay companies within our buildings. But, so yeah, it's something that we're going to explore even more. In thinking about the market still, the fact that you know a, a lot of new policies around rentals and tenant, the, tenants, the Residential Tenancy Act have come in in the past few years, if you talk to commercial brokers, it seems like multifamily is has been kind of beat up the worst uh, right now. Are you seeing opportunities in multifamily right now, or is it generally fairly stable? We we still see opportunities. However, we do hear constantly the negative press, uh, the negative rhetoric from from politicians about rental housing, and we frankly. Uh, we, we resent it because we, we see ourselves and all the other landlords have ever spoken to, we see ourselves as part of the solution and not part of the problem. We want to provide 
rental housing. Uh, we do it well. Only a very diligent steward of the asset will make sure that a building provides housing for, for a very long period of time and quality housing, right? Like we, we want to charge market rent. In order to charge market rent, we have to maintain the buildings and we have to spend a lot of money maintaining the buildings. We provide exceptional customer service. Like I would say we're best in class when it comes to customer service. And well, there's, there's a cost associated to that. But there's also an impact to the people that live in our, in our buildings. So the quality of life is significantly improved because of all the things that come attached to living in a professionally managed building by Quadrio, right? So yes, we wish that rental housing and housing in general was not so politicized. Some of the policies that are introduced, frankly, are counterproductive. But there's still opportunities. There's still opportunities because, and I'm going to jump ahead to one of your other questions. Vancouver is, is a global city. Vancouver is a place where people want to be, not only because of its natural beauty, but there's plenty of options for employment, you know, from a very strong tech sector to film industry to resources, tourism, etc. So it's, it's, it's a dynamic city and we still see a long run here. We have investments that, that back that up, like, like Oak Ridge, for example. And we're going to continue to be here for a while. And we, we are Vancouver-based. Uh, Vancouver is our, our headquarters. Can we talk about how you think about, and I think this was before we went live too, but we were talking about low yields right, on properties here in Vancouver versus other places. Yeah, You know, it is notable Quadrille likes global cities, right? Based in Vancouver, heavily invested in Vancouver, also other global cities. Can you talk about that, that interplay and how you, and why Quadrille focuses on, on global cities, even though at least the acquisition point the yeah. yields are and the cap rates are 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 low. Yeah. Okay. So I'll, I'll start with the with the yields and the cap rates. So I mean, residential real estate um, typically trades depending on what it is, but I've seen trades as low as you know two point nine cap, and um, now they're close to the fours. That's still a pretty low yielding um, asset class, particularly when you look at your cost of borrowing money currently. Uh, Sure. You, you, you can't borrow at uh, you know less than four percent. So if you're going to acquire something that's yielding less than what you're borrowing at, it, it's it's hard to make sense it's of a it. Losing proposition. Yeah, um, but uh, you know there's still some options out there. You know there's still if if you're creative in in your deal structure, you can still make it work. Again, when you are a best in class operator of real estate, we think, and we think that because we've we've done it. We can draw the most value from our assets, right? Like we, we, can, we can squeeze the most juice out of them. Other operators are, are not as good at it as we are. Talking about global cities, yeah, I mean, Quadril has $67 billion worth of assets under management. It started out being mostly in Canada. It has now transitioned more internationally. Well, I don't get involved too much in the international portfolio, um, in Canada, I know that at least for residential are two areas of conviction or cities of conviction are Vancouver and Toronto. And the same reasons for Vancouver are the same reasons for Toronto. You know, it attracts a lot of immigration and it, it attracts a lot of skilled immigration, right? Like people who come here, come prepared to hit the job market day one and, and contribute right away. The likes of Amazon significantly betting on, uh, on Vancouver. And we're encouraged by that. I mean, well, it's also... Interesting that we, we do own the post where Amazon is going to be moving into. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But when we see global companies betting on on the cities that we also invest in, it, it reinforces the idea that you know our strategy is aligned with what the world economy is is, is moving towards. You know, internationally, yeah, we we look at cities that have a a, a long runway uh, of uh, economic prosperity and options, right? Like, I'll give an example of of, of Calgary. We, we love Calgary, but we struggle with the fact that the Alberta economy is so dependent on just the one industry or one or two industries, you know, oil and gas. That has brought some challenges in, in the recent past. You know, Calgary went through a bit of a rough patch there for a while. Mm. It's currently resurging very strongly, but I think it's resurging because a very particular geopolitical incident, you know, the invasion of Ukraine by, by Russia. So, so that disruption in, in the oil markets gave Calgary a, a second wind, but it could also flip the other way. So, so we're a little cautious of, um, of economies and, and of cities that uh, may not have a very diversified economy. We don't want to be stuck with something that hey, you know, is, is too spiky. We, we, like, we like flat growth, steady, steady growth, but uh, spikes, we prefer not to get too involved in that. Okay, because uh, the next question was, what do you think should of Edmonton? Matt, should Matt buy in Calgary? Uh, th- that was the, uh, I, I once heard it said, uh, I think on the commercial podcast, that that in Vancouver, you pay for the vacancy rate. That's what you're paying for, is that low vacancy rate. Do you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I mean, we operate at about 96% occupancy. So only about 4% of our units are down at any one given time. Mm-hmm. What, what does that mean? It means that you constantly have money coming in. Even through the pandemic, we were very concerned. I think everybody was concerned during the pandemic about our land, uh, our tenants of all kinds, the residential tenants or commercial tenants, are they going to stop paying rent? And we saw more resiliency in residential tenants paying rent than in commercial tenants. So people want to pay their rent. We also feel it's, it's, it's in part at least because of the great value we provide, right? And, and the great customer service we provide. So our, our, our residents recognize it and they want to continue paying their rent. And uh, even through the pandemic, yes, our vacancy increased. Like a lot of people moved out and moved back home. But uh, the people that remained continue to pay rent. And even today, so now that we're back pretty much to, to pre-pandemic levels, at least in occupancy. Yes, like it's, it's easier to make your operations work when you have 96% of your building occupied. You know, just thinking about the pandemic a little bit, uh, one thing, you know, we've been doing this since 2016. And I feel like 2016 to 2020, we talked a lot about global cities and Vancouver being a global city and, mm-hmm. and how to understand Vancouver in this kind of larger uh, environment of, of superstar cities or global cities or whatever. COVID flipped the script almost entirely where we started talking about secondary markets a lot and people leaving and, you know, the rise of the Fraser Valley or Nanaimo or, or mm-hmm. wherever, right? I'm just wondering if Quadreal as being a company that, you know, that is based on, on looking at global cities, like, did you change your strategy at all over COVID? Did you pivot in any way or was it still a kind of fundamental belief in looking at for those cities that have those 
you know, those qualities that we've mm-hmm. already talked about? No, our fundamental belief uh, stay the same, right? Like we shifted a little bit strategy on the asset class that we that we like. Uh, we shifted a little bit more heavily onto industrial, for example. Uh, we've also now invested more in, in data centers and logistics centers. But the core cities that what we look after in, in place to invest has remained the same. Uh, we, we we're confident that we're doing the right thing there. I'm going to also jump ahead to one of the other questions. <laughs> Please. We, we did give you the questions beforehand. You did, yes. And, and I did do my homework, even though it was this morning, but I did do my homework. Um, you should read uh, The Triumph of the City by uh, Edward uh, Glaser or Glaser, I don't know how to pronounce his right. last name. Uh, great book that talks about why cities rise and fall, but, but, but mostly rise. You know, why big cities seem to thrive so much. You know, like examples of New York is the place that's is, is so massive that you think, wow, is this place like how, how can it continue to be always kind of on the top of the map as as, as a, a global city? And that book really really dives into it, right? There's a little bit of a section about Vancouver actually in the book, even though it was written by a guy from uh, from Boston, but um, it does touch on Vancouver and you know access to to Asia and you know for Canada at least being the closest market to uh, originally Hong Kong and, and uh, obviously China, Japan, et cetera. But uh, I'm a firm believer that cities will continue to be the place where ideas thrive. And from ideas that thrive come economic progress and opportunity for people, right? So th- this is a section of the book and I'm going to completely screw it up probably, but Detroit. And it talks about why Detroit which seems to be in the middle of nowhere, or at least in the middle of the country, mm-hmm. why it was such a success, successful city for, for a while. You know, it's, uh, it's gone sideways now, and it's gone sideways because they were not able to pivot and diversify its industry. They just fully betted on the automotive industry, and, and, and that has not gone um, as planned. But it was, it was a transportation hub. So it was close to rivers, and it was easy to do commerce from there, right? So... Most cities, when you look at the history, there were places where people would come, bring their products to a central place to trade, and then from there, they went back to, to their communities. But the city is where trade happens, where ideas happen, and those ideas then thrive. And if you're a kid that grew up you know, in a small town, or the opportunities that that town offers you are so limited compared to what a a city would offer you like the, the, mm-hmm. the, the things that you can do in a city as, as a profession are way more varied than they are in the smaller towns so that's why I think firm believer cities will continue to thrive yes there's been a bit of a move on people working from home I personally also think that's not going to last too long and that's why at Quadril we continue to bet on, on big cities hey everyone pardon the interruption we just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible we want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out. Starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just 
feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah. You know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the way. And I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Konkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer. And they're looking for both donations and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join typing in VRP 2020. It's interesting because what you're doing at Quadreal, specifically your role is you're doing like a more uh, sophisticated, larger scale approach to what a lot of mom and pop investors are doing really, right? In, in, some, in, mm-hmm. in some instances. Can you talk about like what, what makes a good deal? And then also if, if we're just thinking about the city, like are there certain metrics that like population growth or certain industries. And I know you want to look for a diverse market, but are there other industries that that really, if you see like, I feel like every development company, when they're building a building, they talk about how tech is coming to that specific Kelowna, market, whether, yeah. whether it's true or Victoria. not. Kind of, but are there... <laughs> Calgary. Yeah, every, everybody's talking everybody about Everybody throws tech into their marketing brochures as an industry coming, right? Mm-hmm. That everyone should be excited about. I guess what what like what makes a, a future city for you or something that that makes you excited to invest? Right. I mean, for for us, a good deal, and I can get maybe I start macro. But I, I think we discussed it enough uh, macro. Like it has to be a thriving city that is not just thriving tem- temporarily. We want to see something that you know we we can tell there's a, a, a good runway. And how how can we tell that? Partly is immigration, right? Like we we look at how many people are moving here. What kind of companies are setting up shop here? So that, that's that's important to us. If we get a little bit more specific uh, at the ground level, we are very focused on on TOD, uh, transit oriented development. We have seen in our own properties and and just from the sharing economy and and, and other uh, factors out there, driving a car is is a bit of a thing of the past. I mean, I'm not saying that cars are going to disappear anytime soon, but you know, public transit is is much more convenient. Than, than, than drive, right? So we try to make sure that most of our development and acquisitions are easily accessible th- through transit. Other things we look at, uh, environmental risk, for example. You know, there's areas even in, in the lower mainland, like, like Richmond, where sea level rise could, could threaten an, an investment, right? So, so we pay close attention to that. More particulars about the deal. For us, you know, we are, like I said before, a best-in-class operator. And in order to be a best-in-class operator, we do have a little bit more robust of a operating platform. So having less than a couple of hundred units makes it hard for us to, to roll out the staffing model that we want to have in place in order to provide the service that we want to provide and um, operate the, the, the building uh, the, the best we can. 
We also don't like, when we're doing acquisitions, we don't like things that uh, have a lot of capital demands coming up. You know, we try to buy uh, buildings that are, that are fairly new. Like I also mentioned this before, we pride ourselves in, in how diligent we are as a steward of the asset. And you know, acquiring something that has a lot of capital work needed is kind of counter to what we, we like doing. Right? Like we, we, we want to have properties that are in as good of a shape as, as they can be, regardless of age. But if we're acquiring something from somebody who has not been as diligent with their maintenance as we are, you know, yeah, that doesn't, doesn't fit very well with our model. So we, we, we try to stick to as new as possible if we're, if we're acquiring something that somebody else built. And uh, if we're developing ourselves, then, then we go all out and make sure that the developments check all, all of our little boxes, right? Like the transit location. Um, we like concrete over, over wood frame, for example. We like scale, so we like big buildings. And uh, second part of the question was basically just if, if um, not only what well cities, um, and then how you analyze, yeah, essentially how you analyze a good deal, really, like what what factors go into making a, a good buy. Yeah, I mean, we we look at IRR, right? So we we're gonna buy and hold, and we do a ten year analysis. So like how, how much is this property going to yield? We uh, attach a pretty significant amount of leverage to, to all of our acquisitions. And then we you know, try to determine what a, what a adequate uh, terminal value is going to be. So when we get rid of the property, try to do projections on you know, 10 years down the road, what, what do we think cap risk is going to be at? And I know it's, it's tricky to you know, predict that with any accuracy, but that's what we try to do. So I, if I understand correctly, and I mean, this is, uh, you guys seem to be almost winning by just being the best operators in a lot of cases, right? It's almost a, a warning or a lesson for small time landlords that they shouldn't be absentee. They should be providing a good situation for their tenants. Absolutely. Good service. Good service, right? Which is interesting. And, and it, if I understand the long runway, so it's, it's not betting on the cap rate today. It's betting on the cap rate tomorrow. I mean, we, we bet on everything. Right, we can't just uh, rely on, you know, very compressed cap rate on 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 exit uh, to make an investment decision because, well, we're gonna be holding the asset for several years until that may or may not come to fruition. Right, so we we look at a lot of aspects of the investment. It's, it's not just IRR, it's not just yield, it's not just terminal value. It's it's a, it's a combination of factors. Right, so we have a very sophisticated acquisitions process, and. Uh, you know, unless several of us in the room nod our head and give it the thumbs up, if there's not substantial support for it, we're not buying it. We're not desperate to just buy something. Like we want to make sure that everything we buy fits with our long-term objectives and that uh, we're not, you know, taking decisions lightly. Can we talk a little bit about projections? We always have forecasting questions, but we're not necessarily, I'm not, we'll, we'll save it for the end when we say, what, what does the market look like in six months? But like a 10-year projection, can you talk about how you get to the numbers where you're factoring in, okay, this is what this is what 10, year, 10 years out looks like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, some of them are easy. Like some of them, we have plenty of data to support, for example, rent growth, right? We look at historical trends. We have, uh, you know, economic trends that we look at as well. And we can make a projection of, say, okay, we think market rents are going to be going up by, call it 4% year upon year, right? That sounds conservative, 
If I, if I say 4%, because if you look at data from you know, newspapers or whatnot, you'll see rents are much higher than that. But when you're trying to underwrite a 200-unit building, if you get too, too aggressive on your rent growth, then it's going to start to look a little bit skewed, right? It's like, well, you, you, that sounds a little too optimistic, Raul. Somebody's going to stay in the room. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so we try to be optimistic about it, but with our feet firmly planted and, okay, let's not overpromise here. In, in BC, as you know, there's, there's rent control as well, right? So, so then there's the second factor to market rent growth is turnover, right? So if people stay in the units for a long period of time, we have less capacity to catch up to market rent. So, you know, that last year, um, well, through the pandemic, rents were frozen for renewal contracts. And then in the last year, which was, you know, um, John Horgan's exit surprise, they fixed rents at 2% increases for 2022, which was, you know, not a pleasantly received news. Sorry, for 2023, uh, 2022 was 1.4, 1.5%, right. I believe. Right. So since we only have, you know, call it 25% of the building will turn over, only those 25% of the units can catch up to market. So part of my criticism of measures like rent control is that. Yes, you're fixing the rent for the people that are staying, but it so pushes ourselves and all the landlords to really increase rents when a unit becomes vacant. Mm -hmm. Now, somebody out there is going to listen to this, going to think, oh, we should put some rent controls on the vacant units as well. Well, that's just going to put another obstacle in delivering more housing. Anyway, let's not get into that. But the the, the way we, we, we calculated this, okay, we're going to, acquire this property for X amount, it's going to yield whatever's yielding uh, when we buy it. What strategies can we put in place to, to, to increase those yields? You know, we, we can renovate suites, for example. We can reposition the market. Maybe we start marketing it to a different demographic that tends to stay longer. For example, we, we and this some practical advice for your um, customers out there. If you are thinking of buying a condo to rent or a few condos to rent, you're better off buying two one-bedroom condos than one two-bedroom condo. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, A, you're diversifying, right? You, ha you have the same investment, maybe split into two options. Um, and then the people that rent a one-bedroom typically stay less. Mm -hmm. So they'll stay, you know, a couple of years and then they'll move on because people move away because of uh, um, life events, right? Like they either got married or engaged or they got a job opportunity somewhere else. So they have to move. So for the you know, mom and pop's uh, condo investor, I would recommend buying a smaller unit over a large one. Mm. So we look at that as well. So when we're trying to acquire a building, if it has too many three bedrooms, we are not as attracted to that because A, they sit vacant longer and people that eventually do rent out a three bedroom apartment never leave. Never leave. <laughs> so uh, yeah, we, we play around with vacancy. We play around with rent growth on... Terminal value on, on cap rates, it, it's hard, right? Like if, if somebody asked me the question January of last year, what the year-end value for assets was going to be, I would have given a completely different answer than I would have given in September when, you know, all this interest rate hikes came in. And now we are in a situation where like interest rates are significantly higher than they have been for the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. So obviously it, it, it pushes values down for... Um, 
many asset classes, particularly for residential, because you know the yields were so close to to the cost of borrowing money already. But regardless, if you do an IRR model, your terminal value drives a lot of the return. So we don't want to be too too optimistic on saying, oh, you know, when we sell this thing ten years down the road, it's going to be triple what we pay for it, right? Because then then that also looks a little bit funny, right? right? So within the trickiness of trying to predict something 10 years down the road, we do try to come up with our best estimate of either you know, a flat cap rate on, on terminal or a little bit of decompression as, as we come out. I'm fascinated with the, the, all the conversation around the future cities and uh, obviously Vancouver and Toronto are cities you've got your eye on and you're operating in. What other, uh, what other cities in Canada Calgary got a, is getting an artificial bump right now, potentially. Uh, what other cities in Canada are you excited about? Uh, I mean, you, you got to understand that Quadrial and, and capital in general is, is global, right? Like capital chases uh, opportunity. Canada only has a, a few cities that exceed a million people. And most of those cities are right against the border. I've heard some chat about Kelowna, for example. Uh, there's some uh, interesting things happen in Kelowna. The issue is sometimes scale, right? Like when, when the market is small and there's a bit of a real estate boom, you could be in a situation where, where, where the fundamentals that we discussed about Vancouver were there's significantly more people moving in than there's, you know, housing being built. In smaller cities, that vision is not as dramatic, right? So a few deliveries of large buildings in Kelowna may balance the, the uh, equation a little too much and, and er- erode the, uh, the opportunity. But definitely, we, we've looked at Kelowna as uh, something that, huh, let's keep an eye on that market, see, see what keeps happening there um, and, uh, and discuss it down the road. But you know, Kelowna is competing for capital against, I don't know, Austin or Tennessee. So, And can we expand out to North America? Like where in the U.S. are, are you excited? Is, or is there a place where it's like, wow, there's... Here's an opportunity. Everything lines up. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, I unfortunately don't get very involved with um, with an international portfolio. We have actually a completely different uh, division of Quadrial that looks at international investments. However, we do see and look at, we call them proxy cities, right? So we see Seattle as a proxy for, for Vancouver. So we try to analyze what happens in Seattle with this tech industry, aeronautics, et cetera. Uh, and see how, what kind of you know conclusions we can draw from what's happening in Seattle, maybe in San Francisco, and extrapolate them to to Vancouver, right? And and sorry, when you say proxy cities, so you're using basically other cities along the West Coast to kind of play out what the potential is. Yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily just geographic, but definitely, I mean, if you look at Vancouver and Seattle, right? Like ge- geographically, they're identical, you right. can say. But then you dig a little deeper into into demographics and into the economy, and they're also quite similar, right? So uh, big tech presence in Seattle from uh, Amazon and uh, and Microsoft. Well, Vancouver has that, right? And and so then then we ask the question: Okay, well, why is Amazon and, and Microsoft setting up shop in in, in Vancouver? Why what has drawn them away from Seattle? And and sometimes in part. I mean, for a while, it was immigration issues, right? Like there was uh, a bit of a negative sentiment in, in the United States towards immigration. 
whereas Canada is, is very open to 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 bring in uh, new immigrants and, and do the process quickly. We basically have a very sophisticated um, immigration process here that that makes it easy for for companies to bring skilled workers in. But also, you know, you look at San Francisco. The cost of living in San Francisco was was going crazy. So if you're Salesforce or you know Amazon, you're trying to bring in a skilled worker and offer them a, a pretty good salary, but then they're like, okay, where am I going to live? And most of my income is going to be spent on housing. That doesn't sound as attractive anymore. So they have to look at other places where, you know, the city itself is fun. You know, like it, it would be hard, no offense to anybody out there from like Lethbridge, but it'd be hard to <laughs> set up shop over there and try to attract inter- international talent because the city itself is, is not, you know, a destination call. Right. Vancouver, gorgeous city and uh compounded with the fact that you know it's close to the united states it's easy access to to the asian markets it it puts in a pretty privileged position to continue to attract skilled workers other cities that i I know we are uh we have activity in is austin for example in 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 texas same pretty pretty strong um tech sector tech seems to be the profession of the future i mean Maybe manufacturing is coming back to certain places, but skilled labor, you know, value-added labor and value-added industry is is uh, where you see the most job prospects and the, the most continued um, you know, growth in, in terms of employment. Hmm. So like logistics, uh, I guess, thinking about the tech sector and also thinking about kind of industrial commercial space, it's all it's all kind of setting up for people having goods delivered to their homes, um, yeah. <laughs> tech workers, um, you know, tech companies continue to grow. It's uh, it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You, you guys should have somebody from uh, industrial come, come chat with you uh, in your podcast. I can introduce somebody else like Quadril if you want, but uh, I mean, our industrial sector has been doing great. Um, right. Uh, it's just been on fire for the last couple of years, right? Yeah. It seems to be the one kind of recession proof, uh, of of all the commercial assets, right? It just seems to keep going and yeah, going and going. That's great, Matt. Uh, I, I I just have so I got well two more questions. One is, Raúl, you've been in Vancouver for a great number of years. You have the backing of Quadreal. I'm just wondering for any mom and pop investor, you kind of mentioned transit oriented developments, but if you had to direct somebody, say for under, let's give you two million bucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, that might be too large. 1.5. But then it takes a lot of the single family out, I guess. Okay. Well, uh, all right. 2 million bucks. Let's say 2 million bucks. Your nephew wants to buy an investment property in Vancouver. Where, where are you directing them? I guess 2 million bucks. 2 million bucks. I tell him to buy more than one. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So one beds. One beds on transit. Yeah. Yeah. Is yeah. certain neighborhoods, what's your favorite spot? Uh, I definitely like... Um, you know, the, the whole area around the Emily Carr University campus. Um, False Creek Flats. Yeah, False Creek Flats is, is great. I still think that, um, you know, the Olympic Village is uh, very attractive. Um, it seems like whenever we do demographic studies, the millennials that we're going after, uh, the, what's the, after Gen X? Yeah, millennial, millennials. Well, Gen X, millennials, and Gen Z. right. Anyway, oh. the the cohort of of uh, people we're going after, they they really like their lifestyle choices. 
So, uh, you know, it has to be somewhere that, that it's attractive to, to live. There's stuff to do, you know, like there's a seawall, there's a beach, there's concerts, there's games to go to. I would actually recommend to stay away from a single family home. This is completely personal opinion. Why? Well, first of all, when you own a single family home as an investment, you're on the hook for all the repairs. You, you don't split them with your neighbors, right? Like whatever goes, you had to fix yourself. And single family homes are not a very efficient way of living. If, if you fast forward, you know, several years down the road, I mean, I think Vancouver announced recently that they're not going to create any more single family home zoning, right? Mm-hmm. It's inefficient. It's more efficient to have vertical buildings where a lot of people share, you know, heating systems, roof, envelope. That's the more efficient way of living than single family home. So, and, and also diversification. So that those 2 million bucks for your investor, they'll buy one property and whenever it's vacant, they have to subsidize it. If they buy two properties, well, now they could just cut the risk in half in terms of vacancy, right? Uh, somebody moves out, well, at, at least they still have the income from the other one, right? Right. So and I would also recommend try to buy something as new as, as possible for the same reasons of capital costs coming up. Uh, definitely do a look, look at the depreciation report of, uh, of the strata. Make sure the strata is properly funded. And... Uh, if you're going to be managing it yourself, make sure it's not too far away from where you live. Because my day job today is is uh, residential asset management, but I also had an investment property in the past, and I had to go. You know, I, I got phone calls. Is the reason why you don't have it anymore? <laughs> you were a plumber, plumber on Christmas Day. Exactly. I I have been doing a, a lot of things on days that I didn't want to be working, it, it comes with being a landlord, right? So if you have to now drive a couple hours away to be doing that, it's, yeah, you got to look at your opportunity costs for yourself, right? It's right. Like, I could have been watching football. You know, opportunity <laughs> costs, but also, you know, it's a long-term play. And if you're every three weeks, you have a massive headache, chances are you're, you're not going to have the, you're, you're going to be looking to unload it sooner than right. later. Right. And I mean, $2 million is not going to buy you a new house. Yeah, right. No. The house is gonna need a lot of love and a lot of elbow grease. So three one bedrooms, I think, is the is yeah. the newer buildings. Yeah, and uh, I guess. Well, I'm I'm guessing your final yeah. question is the forecasting. What do you think is gonna happen in the market next one, three, five years out? Well, like I said, the fundamental of Vancouver continues to be strong. More people are gonna be moving here than homes are gonna be delivered. So. I continue to see an imbalance between supply and demand. And the result of that imbalance is continued rise in rents and continued rise in, in property values. So I continue to have at work and personally an optimistic outlook. And I'm, I'm still bullish on, on Vancouver as a whole for three, five, ten years. We have this section called, the, or segment, I should say, called the Five Wire, five lighthearted questions that we end every episode with. All right. Can you stick around for that? I know we've taken almost, uh, well, about an hour of your time, but... Uh, yeah, I'm ready. The Five Wire is brought to you by Scalina Real Estate. Hey, that sounds familiar. Scalina Real Estate is a full-service real estate company serving Vancouver, offering comprehensive, tried and tested buyer and seller systems. With over a decade in the top 10% of realtors in the lower mainland and a perfect five-star Google review, Scalina Real Estate can help with all your real estate needs. We also have an extensive network of the best industry professionals and trades right across the country. There's no reason to not get in touch. 
head over to scalinarealestate.com to find out more. Yeah. All right. Okay. So question number one is what is one book you've read recently that you'd recommend for our listeners? So I think I mentioned it before. Anyone who wants to understand real estate should read um, The Triumph. Triumph of the City. Triumph of the City. Yeah, it's, it's easily available. You can find it on Amazon. Uh, there's an audio book about it. It's, it's, it's a great, great book. Fantastic. In the last few years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? It's funny. I was reading your questions this morning in my office, and uh, I mentioned that somebody was in my office chatting with me. And uh, I started doing... Uh, overnight fasting. I actually lost 30 pounds in the past, you know, two years. Like in wow. August of uh, 2021, that was 215 pounds and I'm less than 190 now. And you attribute that almost entirely to fasting? Well, I also, I used to have, uh, <laughs> this is probably not going to be rocket science, but I used, my breakfast used to be one of those said, uh, <laughs> double, <Ice cream. laughs> Close. double smoked bacon sandwich from, from Starbucks. Like, yeah, yeah. That was like my daily breakfast, right? That'll do it. And, and I, <laughs> I substituted that with uh, overnight oats with protein, et cetera. And, and now I don't eat anything before call it 10 a.m. So that has significantly. So you're doing a, like a, what is that? A, a 16, no. eight? Kind of, you're 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 fasting over the night. You don't eat breakfast, and you eat during a yeah the daytime window. Yeah, so I I, I don't think I fully get the sixteen hour uh, fasting gap because yeah. I you know I have dinner call it seven a little bit later. So from call it from eight at night to ten in the morning, I don't eat anything. So that's fourteen hours. That's great. Yeah. What have you been binge watching lately, or a movie recommendation? Uh what have I've been really into uh, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt? Uh, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Oh, uh, okay. Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Schmidt. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even, I'm not sure. Uh, I've never even, I don't even know what that I is. I feel like I've I, heard of it, but I don't know. You know what? Like it, it It's it, a comedy on, on Netflix. It ah. was uh, Tina Fey as a producer and... Uh, you know how you're sometimes like hovering on Netflix and then the thing just oh, starts yeah, to yeah, play yeah, yeah, and I was yeah. like, oh, I'll just keep watching. And and it was hilarious. So I just, uh, I've been watching that lately. Kimmy Schmidt. All right. That's a first. Favorite band or music? Pearl Jam. Uh, yeah. Pearl Jam is my favorite band. I wish I had, I'm, I've been trying to expand my horizons now and uh, I'm getting more into, I love The Weeknd, for example, I think it's fantastic. But yeah, mostly alternative rock. And uh, sounds like 1997 at the den to me. That's right. That's exactly <laughs> some of my roots, but also kind of roots in Mexico because I feel like older rock in Mexico is uh, always a thing, right? For sure. Oh yeah, yeah. You, like, you a big Mana fan? Uh, no, I'm not a big Mana <laughs> I fan. It's like asking no. like someone from Quebec if they like rock voisin. I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it, it I, never. I you're, mean, you're a big rock voisin. <laughs> no, no, no. But Mana is uh, it's definitely popular. Yeah. It's kind of like the tragically hip uh, for Canadians, right? So nah, I have a feeling no. if you if no? you because no. you're a big hip fan, I love the hip. Okay, yeah, yeah, wait, yeah. but Mana, I my. This is, I'll put this out here. I think their lyrics are very, it's hard to be like a a guy in self-respecting and, and listen to some <laughs> of those lyrics. I don't know. I, my Spanish isn't that good. I just hear a lot about butterflies and stuff like that. It <laughs> yeah. makes me feel a little uncomfortable. Yeah, no, Mana, I mean, 
growing up in Mexico, you, you can't get away from it, right? It's kind of like Nickelback, I guess, if you're from the prairies. Right. So you'll listen to a song and be like, oh, yeah, I kind of like that song, but you, but you feel guilty admitting it in a way. And then Manak, I actually lived in Proviarda for a while. They had a, a bar there called The Santos or something like that. And uh, they were constantly there. So not that I became friends with them by any stretch of the imagination, but like I met them a few times. And I still couldn't, I, I don't think I ever purchased a Mana song, uh, uh, album or on my phone said, oh, play some Mana right now. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Does uh, Vicente Fernandez get a lot of play in Mexico City or is that more of like a rural? That man's an institution. Mia <laughs> <laughs> culpa. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, yeah. Sonia's from El Salvador who uh, uh, works with us. And I remember when he passed away, what, last year, whatever, it was like, we played, it, was, uh, it was a huge we thing played in here. Yeah. Yo, guitar on Neddy or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Vicente Fernandez is, yeah, like I challenge any Spanish speaking person, maybe not in Spain, but from Mexico to Argentina, everybody knows who he is. Same with Luis Miguel. Right. Yeah. So, last question for you, Raul. Something you have purchased for under $1,500 that has changed your life in the last few years? Uh, I bought an Echelon bike, which is uh, an e-bike, right? Uh, like a it's like a Peloton, like a cheaper, oh. like a slightly cheaper version of the Peloton. And I think the trick to the success of the usage—it's a little unsightly in my living room, but it's in front of the TV. So you know, when you're sitting on the couch in my previous life, sitting on the couch watching TV, now I have a bicycle there. And you you almost feel guilty because it like it's like the bicycle's looking at you. It's like you know you could be doing the same, <laughs> watching the same show, sitting on the bicycle and pedaling. So that's what I do now. And and most shows are you know thirty minutes, so you get thirty minutes of uh, cycling. So lose the breakfast sandwich, get on a bike, Kimmy Schmidt. Uh, we got it. We got the workout plan. That's right. No, uh, and no mana. How, no mana. Uh, how can people find out more about what you're up to, Raul? And of course, what's going on at Quadrial? Well, I mean, Quadrial, we have a very strong uh, social media presence. So you can find us on, on LinkedIn. I'm pretty sure like we almost have like a daily post, it seems. There's a lot of information um, about Quadrial on, on LinkedIn. Visit our website, quadrial.com. If you're a student out there, reach out to our um, campus program. Uh, if you, you know, want to explore our internship opportunities, we, we invest heavily in, an, in our interns, in an intern program. So if you're a student, uh, check it out. Um, reach out to me if you can find me on LinkedIn. I, I always have time for, for a coffee with anyone who wants to talk uh, real estate. And, uh, you know, listen to this podcast too. I'm sure there's some <laughs> SFU and UBC students uh, going to take you up on that. So uh, that's, that's great. Well, thanks again for taking the time today. Hey, no worries, guys. Thanks for, thanks for having me. So there you have it, folks. Our discussion with Raul Jaime. VP Investment Management at Quadrill. Really enjoyed that conversation with Raul. And if, if I want to summarize some of his best points while simultaneously telling people to check out our Instagram account. Yes. Let me just bring this up here. Okay, here's, here's Raul Jaime. That's right. Is VP, I think most people say Jamie here. I, I think a lot of people would say Jamie, but yeah. we want to make sure we get it right. Raul Jaime is VP of Investment Management and Deals and Acquisitions. His top four tips will supercharge your investment strategy. Now, the four tips, I like the Matt, hook. I like the hook. 
Focus on transit-oriented development. Is that right? Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. High-quality transit is the future of the Lower Mainland. Transit-oriented development results in vibrant, walkable, amenity-rich communities. Okay. Nice summary. Okay. Now, two. Buy in newer, large, concrete developments. Raul has some experience in older single family. Yes. And I think he's had some really negative, them off. negative experiences. <laughs> but the reasons for buying in newer concrete make a lot uh, of limit, sense. Limited exposure to major capital demands. So, so spikes in, in maintenance costs or, or special levies. And keep unit entitlement low for reduced cost sharing. Right. So in other words, newer, larger, you limit your risk. There won't be huge expenditures. You still collect rent. Right. Life's good. Economies of scale. And number three is don't buy older detached homes. <laughs> I think uh, I think Raul kind of went over that a bit on the show. Right. But you're going to end up being your own plumber on uh, Christmas Day. Right. Which uh, I think literally he was. That did happen. That did happen. That's a true story. Right. And then last but not least, uh, small units are better than large units. Don't buy a two-bedroom or a three-bedroom condo. Buy two one-bedroom condos. And why would you do that, Matt? Well, higher rent per square foot. Greater tenant turnover means you can keep up with market rent. You're not dealing with restrictive rent increases. You have more diversity in your portfolio and you get multiple units will offset potential vacancies. I like that when we gave him 2 million bucks and said, what would you buy? And it was multiple units. Multiple units in Olympic Village or uh, False Creek Flats. Kudos to you on that Instagram post. It was... Uh, well, here's... So, you're, so here's you're the thing. We're doing God's work over there, I, specifically you. <laughs> I... Uh, I wrote that out and, yeah. and past guest, fan favorite, Peter Leung. Uh, the investorpreneur. Yeah. So investorpreneur said I would do the exact same thing. So now I've had two guys that focus on global real estate give me the same or agree with that advice. Multiple units, False Creek Flats or Olympic Village. False Creek Flats, there's not a lot to choose from. No. Canvas. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, not I, concrete. Olympic Village but is, is great. No, yeah, it is. It yeah. is. And the rents there are sky high, so. Absolutely. Uh, no, it was a great conversation. Uh, he's, he's a super smart guy. A really great story. Uh, his way to Quadrille, I thought right. was interesting. Mexico uh, via, you know, the, the backup QB on the dinos and University of Calgary. Back to selling real estate in Mexico, opening up a shop in Calgary. And then over to Vancouver. It was a, it was a great story. And, you know, I'm happy I, we, we, I can call him a friend. It's amazing how good of a skier he is for growing up in Mexico City. Maybe I... Is, does Quar Mexico okay. Quarterback yeah. and, and snowboarding is... Uh, he said football. American football is huge in Mexico, though. In Mexico City. Yeah. Is yeah. it? I didn't know that. I didn't either. No. But anyway, great having him on the show and uh, great having him down to the studio. What else do we have? I feel like we've already pitched Instagram enough. People are still really have their hearts set on those shirts. I, I, you know what? We've had, a, we've had a handful of people just in the last week reach out, sending more shirts out. Yeah. Uh, we've got new maroon. That's right. Bur burgundy. New maroon five shirts. We've got the, the new burgundy shirts are coming. They're hot in this week. I, we don't have them yet. Right. But they will be going out. So definitely follow us on Instagram. Share your favorite episode. That's one way that you might get a shirt. But also just uh, comment, interact in the community. We're talking to the VREP community we're, and we're really enjoying it. Yeah, so. absolutely. So that's on Instagram. We also have our new website, 
getting so much positive feedback. We also got our new website, VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. We are getting so much feedback, all positive on the site. Really easy to dig down into certain topics, go back through the back catalog and isolate for certain topics through the synopses that we have there. We also have the live wire. That's our weekly mailer. The stats are coming out today, tomorrow. We're going to have those out and sales ratios before anyone else. We got deal of the month. We got a bunch of VIP pre-sale projects. There's no reason why you shouldn't be on the live wire. Adam, also we have, of course, tried and true private client services. Because Matt, if you're not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor level information. It's free. It's available at your fingertips. VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Sign up for your own PCS account. This is the time you want to be monitoring PCS. There are deals out there and it's it's hard to know about them when you're not being kept in the loop. Absolutely. Sure. That's private client services at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. And if you want to talk about that or anything else, Adam, you can try me at 778-847-2854 or Matt at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or Adam at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. We also got that Kokomo line and we also got the new sign. If you're seeing this video, oh, yeah. the new sign, this Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. We're like gr the Granville Strip in Kokomo Studios now, but you can reach out on the Kokomo line info at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. We'll have a great week, guys. We're back with some more great content next week. We have some phenomenal guests coming. I can't even believe the lineup here. Yeah. Uh, so much, so much to look forward to. So have a great week and uh, we'll see you next time. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. <laughs>